remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text from John 6. Give your ear to the gospel of God. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when he had seen the sign, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. And they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your promises, for how it convicts us, challenges us, and comforts us. Help us to receive it by the same Spirit who inspired it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You can turn to John 6. We will be turning a little bit in your Bibles. And I want to focus on the last part of what I just read, the walking on the water out, in, out to the boat. And in a minute, we're actually going to read Matthew and Mark's accounts of the same story. And we're going to kind of look at this event from, from the various perspectives, including John's, John's primarily. 
By the time we get to John chapter 6, the ministry of Christ is going strong. Jesus is attracting all kinds of people to Him. And it's because of His miracles, His signs. He's really something to see. So people are talking, talking about Him and drawing near to Him. They're wanting to see it for themselves. But the question we have to ask, the question John puts before us, implicitly at least, sometimes right in our face, is do the throngs of people gathering around Jesus see Him for who He is? Do they know His identity? Do they know who He is and why He came and what what He's all about? What His message is? What His Gospel message is? Do they know that He's not just the promised Messiah, but He's also the suffering servant of Isaiah. He's the king who will die, who will suffer for his people. Of course, the answer to all those questions is no. They don't get it. It turns out that even the 12 closest to Jesus, the 12 apostles, lack understanding. And that is rooted in their lack of faith. And their lack of faith and their lack of understanding are exposed when they're tested by Jesus with these two back-to-back impossibilities in John chapter 6 that we just read. The first test is how to feed 5,000 men plus the women and children with just five loaves and two fish. And we looked at that two weeks ago. We saw how the power and the provision of Jesus are on display in verses 1 to 14 or so in John 6. And today we're going to look at the second test, which is how to cross an uncrossable sea in the middle of a storm. We'll see how the power and presence of Jesus are on display in verses 15 to 21 of John 6. But before we consider this story of Jesus walking on the water in the midst of a gale force wind, I want us to read accounts of this story written by Matthew and Mark. Luke doesn't record this story in his Gospel. Only Matthew, Mark, and John do. And John was the last Gospel to be written, and it assumes knowledge of the previous Gospels. That's one of the maybe few things that pretty much every scholar agrees on that John wrote last. So let's familiarize ourselves with the accounts that came before John in Matthew and in Mark. First from Matthew 14, 22-33. And you'll notice as I read these that they offer additional details. And you might even wonder, wow, that was a pretty important detail. Why would Mark leave that out? Or why would John leave that out? Well, they had different theological purposes. Of course, none of them contradicts any of the others. But they have different uh, emphases and Um, goals in writing their gospel. So let's read Matthew's in Matthew 14. Immediately Jesus made His disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side while He sent the multitudes away. And when He had sent the multitudes away, He went up on the mountain by Himself to pray. Now when evening came, He was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. 
And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And now from Mark 6, starting in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and and would have passed by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked to them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. So Matthew and Luke give us additional details about this event, and perhaps one reason John doesn't give us as many is he he did assume that maybe many of his readers, if not most, had already read Matthew and Mark's account or were familiar with the details somehow. But back in John 6, I want you to look at verses 14 and 15 in John 6 because here John tells us something unique. He tells us why Jesus left, why he left all those people to go up on the mountain to pray. And this is something that John contributes uniquely. He says in verse 14, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. After Jesus miraculously fed these 5,000 plus people, Those people wanted to make him king, Messiah, Israel's Messiah. And Jesus knew their intentions, so he left. He departed, it says. But before he left, he put his disciples in a boat and he sent them to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then he withdrew to a nearby mountain to spend time alone with the Father in prayer. And in verses 16 to 21 in John 6, which I read earlier, it, it tells the story of Jesus joining the disciples by walking out to them on top of the water. Now, to understand the significance of this event, we need to look at the larger context. We need to see what happens uh, after this episode in John 6 to see why John puts it here and how he's going to maybe apply it. On the day after Jesus walked on the water to the disciples, After Jesus and his disciples had reached the other side, the multitude of people 
that Jesus had fed the day before realized that Jesus was gone, that he'd crossed the sea, and many of them got in boats and they found Jesus. And in verse 25, they asked Jesus after they had found him, Rabbi, when did you come here? When did you cross over? And the crowd, you see, they couldn't be gotten rid of so easily. They liked the bread that Jesus provided. And they were looking for a Messiah who would meet their needs. But look at the Lord's response in verse 26 of John 6. He knows their hearts. He knows that their religion lacks personal faith in Christ. And so he says in verse 26, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, you don't seek me. You don't follow after me because you saw the spiritual meaning in the signs that I performed. You only seek me because the signs that I performed, the sign that I performed, filled up your belly. Verse 26 is a penetrating indictment of religion without personal faith, without living faith in Jesus Christ. The multitudes are following Jesus only because they want a Savior who would supply their material needs. They wanted a king who would conquer. A savior who would supply what they thought they needed. They did not want a spiritual Christ who would redeem them from their enslavement to sin. In the next 30 to 35 verses here in John 6, Jesus gives His bread of life discourse. He essentially tells them that He is a Savior who can give them unimagined spiritual life and spiritual blessings. For example, look down at verse 48. And I'll read to verse 51. Starting in verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. This is what he's telling these people who are following, following him because he gave them the bread on the other side of the sea. He's pointing them to the real bread that they need. Because he knows that's not what they really want. So he's really calling them, in essence, to faith, to repentance, to true faith that goes beyond just the the surface level meaning of the sign or what it provided for them in that day so how would they how would they respond how would this multitude of hearers respond to these hard words loving but hard words well verse 66 tells us from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And after they all left, Jesus turns to the twelve disciples and he asks them in the next verse, do you also want to go away? Or maybe it's in the same verse. Do you also want to go away? Do you guys want to leave too? Twelve disciples? And, and Peter's response in the next verse is one we should imitate. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
you have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We can ask, why did Peter respond this way while the thousands deserted Jesus? What had Jesus done for Peter and maybe the other eleven that He had not done for everyone else, perhaps? Well, the most immediate answer lies in the events of the previous night. When Peter and the rest of the twelve were struggling to sail across the lake in the midst of that storm, Jesus came to them walking on water and He met the discouraged and frightened disciples where they were in their lack of faith. And He ministered peace and assurance to them. That night of struggle on the stormy sea is a picture of believers who follow Christ, Christ through life's storms, sometimes with weak faith. And what we need to see is that this is a story from beginning to end, really the whole section that I read as our text, from beginning to end is a story, a section of Scripture about faith. Matthew's account tells us that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. John doesn't quite put it that way, he just mentions that they got into the boat. But Jesus compelled them. He forced them to get into the boat and cross the sea. It wasn't a suggestion. It was a command. And in forcing them to cross the sea without Him, Jesus intends to test their faith. It seems very possible to me that they, they knew maybe it might not be the greatest idea to get into the boat. I don't know. But will His disciples trust Him? Will they entrust themselves to His power and to His provision? Will they obey Him? Will they do it? The disciples were a few miles away, John says, from the shore when the winds began tormenting their boat. The various accounts say that the, that the wind was against them. It was contrary to them. They were sailing directly into the wind is the point there. They were in trouble. They were in deep trouble. And they were terrified. But consider why the disciples were in trouble. Consider why they were terrified. They were in trouble because they had done exactly what Jesus said to do. They were in this precarious situation because they had pointed their boat in the direction that the Lord Jesus had told them. They were in this mess because they obeyed Jesus. They were right where Jesus wanted them to be. That's, that's where He was sending them. They wouldn't have been in danger, in the middle of the sea at least, if they had disobeyed Christ. And we know from Jonah that they still would have, they would have been in greater danger actually, right? But they were in serious peril here in this situation, in the middle of the sea, only because they had been obedient to Christ. They had steered their boat right into those contrary winds just as Jesus forced them to do. And so what's the lesson here? The lesson is that those of you who have decided to follow Jesus, those of you who have been called 
to be disciples of Jesus. Those of you to whom God has given faith to follow Jesus will find yourselves sailing your vessel directly into the gale force winds of life. You're going to have trouble. That's a promise. Jesus plans to test your faith. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's interesting, he says, take heart here. Be of courage, which is what he tells these disciples in the boat. The thing to remember is that the trouble comes from Jesus ultimately. Like the disciples, you will find yourself in the midst of a storm because you are doing exactly what Jesus wants you to do at that moment. There's no doubt about it. Those who follow Christ and give their allegiance to Him will face contrary winds. Moses never would have felt rejected by the complaining people in the wilderness if he had just decided not to obey God at that burning bush. Daniel never would have been thrown into the lion's den if he had not decided to be faithful to God publicly. Consider how much persecution and trouble, personal anguish Paul would have avoided if he had just stayed in Tarsus instead of becoming a missionary to the Gentiles. But these men of faith knew what you must know. Following Christ will take you into some great storms, but the rewards are even greater because you get Christ. You get Him. So there the disciples are battling the storm into the wee hours of the night, wondering, certainly wondering if they're going to make it to shore, wondering if the Lord had forgotten about him, wondering why in the world he sent him into this storm. And we can imagine them praying something like Psalm 13, which we heard Pastor Lindstrom preach on last week. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? But Jesus had not forgotten them. He had not forsaken them, even though it looked as if he had and felt as if he had. The evidence seemed to point to the fact that he had. Mark's account says that Jesus saw them while he was praying. And that's interesting. It was dark. Jesus was several miles away. But he never lost sight of his disciples. We could ask how he saw them. Maybe lightning. And he had a good view. Maybe just his omniscience. His all-seeing ability. Uh, we don't know, but he saw. He, he was praying to the Father with an eye on his disciples. That should comfort us. Because that's what's going on right now. Jesus is up in heaven interceding to the Father at God's right hand on our behalf with an eye on his people down below. He's up on the mountain, the highest mountain, the highest heaven interceding and watching over His people below. This scene with Jesus on the mountain praying to the Father and watching over His people, over His disciples, this scene is a picture of what Jesus is doing for us now and what He will do for us 
until He returns. He watches over us and He prays to the Father for us. So Jesus knew their plight. And He knows your plight. He knew their plight then. He knows your plight now. He knows. He cares. And He will come to your aid. Remember what Psalm 139 says, verses 7 to 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Shall hold me fast. So wherever you go, the Lord is there and He knows the details of your situation. In fact, He knows the details of your situation far better than you do. When you're in the middle of the storm and when it's dark, as John 6, 17 says, and Jesus has not come to you yet, and it feels like He's not even looking, it's easy to think that He has completely forgotten about you. That's why we have passages like Psalm 13. But the answer is Psalm 139. No matter where you might go, whether you're in the highest heaven or in the deepest part of Sheol, even there the hand of Jesus leads you. And His right hand holds you fast. Jesus knows when a sparrow falls to the ground and dies. So He certainly knows the difficulties you're going through. And I want us to consider the Lord's delay in coming to the disciples. Jesus saw the disciples toiling and rowing helplessly, and yet He didn't come right away. He knew their thoughts. He knew their anxiety. He knew their worries. He saw them struggling to row and getting nowhere making no progress. He knew they were probably wondering where he was, why he had done this to him. And yet, he chose to let that storm batter, batter them around for a while. And finally, at the fourth hour, the fourth, not the fourth hour, the fourth watch of the night, which is sometime after 3 a.m., he came to them. He came during the darkest part of the night when the disciples, we can imagine, were exhausted, miserable, wondering if they would survive. So, why the delay? Why wait to the fourth watch of the night? What was Jesus waiting on? Well, I'm not sure, but Jesus might have delayed for the same reason He delayed in the story of Lazarus in John 11. Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, sent for Jesus while Lazarus was still alive. They asked Jesus to come and heal Lazarus before he died. That was how they saw God's perfect plan playing out. Jesus comes, heals Lazarus, everyone's happy. That was their prayer, that was their hope. It's the only thing they could really see as a good outcome. But that wasn't God's perfect plan. Jesus delayed and allowed Lazarus to die. And after four days, Jesus came and raised Lazarus back to life. 
Before that, he wept. His sisters were sad. They didn't know why Jesus had waited. Now, there may have been several reasons Jesus delayed like this, but one likely reason, it seems to me, is that he was training Mary and Martha. No doubt it did train Mary and Martha. He took them to the very end of their strength so that they would learn to rely on His strength alone. We can't always know why Jesus delays. But, we can be sure that He's watching, that He is praying, that He knows exhaustively every detail of our situations and that He cares and that He will not abandon us. He will not forsake us. He knows what's best for us and He will make sure that that happens. So I can't tell you with any certainty why Jesus does what He does in your life or in mine or in the whole world. Why He delays as long as He does sometimes. Why He sends you out to sea to flail and flounder in the storms. But I can tell you this. You may know Christ, but you, you will never know Him deeply until He comes to you in the midst of life's storms and gives you a peace that passes all understanding. That's when your knowledge of Christ goes deeper. Before they realized who it was, they were paralyzed with fear. They were already afraid. And now, you know, this sea monster or something is coming to devour them. But then the voice of Jesus pierced through the storm. Look at John 6, verse 20. Jesus said, it is I, do not be afraid. And this is the climax of the 21 verses I read. It is I, do not be afraid. The other accounts, accounts tell us a little bit more of what Jesus said. Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Maybe he even said more than that, we don't know. But he certainly said this. When the disciples hear this, their attitudes changed instantly. A moment before, they had been quaking with fear. But then they heard the voice of Christ. And then they focused on Christ. They saw Him. And their hearts and their minds and their eyes We're on Jesus. That's the only thing that mattered at that moment. And and when you focus on Jesus, you begin to find and to receive the help and the peace and the comfort that they began to receive when they heard Jesus and they responded by putting their gaze on Him. You don't find help by focusing on your own resources on what you have to offer the situation, on your own skills, your own strength, your own maneuvering. You don't find help by taking control of the situation. Some of you are not living restful, joyful lives because you are trying to control, engineer everything in your life. You're rowing and struggling and fighting against the gale force wind. And you're so focused on what you're going to do and on controlling the situation that you cannot see Jesus standing right there outside 
your boat, telling you to stop being afraid, stop living in fear, stop worrying, stop trying to grasp control of everything, stop imagining that you can accomplish my will in your own strength, stop staying up all night or getting up in the morning planning and doing in your own strength. Learn how to take a nap on the boat in the middle of the storm. Peter became venturesome, didn't he? When he saw that Jesus was there, he said, Lord, if it's You, command me to come to You on the water. So Jesus said, okay, come. Go for it. And Peter began to walk out. And it it worked. He, He had faith for a while. He was walking on the water. And this is what faith causes us to do. Strange things like this. Peter walked on the water because of his faith and he sank when he began to take his eyes off Jesus. His faith began to waver. But, but Peter, we don't need to knock Peter here. I mean, how many of us have gotten out of a boat and tried to, tried to do something like this, walk on water? Uh, but Peter, he had been around Jesus long enough to know what to do in a situation like this. How to pray in a moment like this. Lord, save me! That's what Peter says in Matthew 14, verse 30 that I read. Lord, save me. And that, that's the sort of prayer that Peter had learned to pray. And it's sort of like the prayer of the father who desperately wants Jesus to heal his son. In Mark 9, you remember, he tells Jesus, you know, he asks Jesus, if you can do this, do it. And Jesus says, if I can do it. And the the guy says, well, I believe, I believe you can do it, but help me overcome my unbelief. He's he's being honest about his situation. Peter believed, but he needed help overcoming his unbelief. And this is where followers of Jesus constantly find themselves. It's where we constantly find ourselves. You believe Jesus can turn your miserable situation into something good, your impossible situation into something good, but you need Jesus to save you from your unbelief so that you can walk in faith and rest in Him. He needs to save you from your lack of faith. And Peter prayed this, after Peter prayed this, Jesus gave him more faith. He answered his prayer, and he, he walked with him back to the boat. And when they climbed in the boat, the wind stopped, and Peter had gotten the point by now. His heart that had been hardened had begun to soften. Remember that it said that their their hearts were hardened after after the miracle of the loaves. But it seems we begin to see here that there's a softening going on. Now Peter still had a long way to go, but his faith was growing. Jesus didn't allow the people to make him their king, but now Peter could clearly see that Jesus was the king with a capital K. He was the king over creation. He could command all of creation. He could walk on water and calm storms. Seeing all of this enabled Peter to say later the next day after Jesus gave his 
bread of life discourse, it allowed him to say, enabled him to say, Lord, to whom shall we go? We don't have anywhere else to go. And we know that you and you alone have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? There's nowhere to go but you. And that's the question for everyone. Only Christ Jesus has the words of eternal life. And He has the words of eternal life because He is eternal life. The Word of eternal life incarnate. Now that we've walked through the story from these various angles, as it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John, I want to I back up and I want to focus on two details that will help us know why this event is significant and help us know what the authors are doing, one of their, one of their goals, one of, the, one of the things they want us to catch. First, we need to ask why Jesus walked on the water. He didn't have to walk on the water. He could have just appeared in the boat if he had wanted. So what's the significance of his walking on the water and then us, our being told that that's how it happened? Well, in the Old Testament, walking on water is something that only God does. Yahweh alone has the ability to traverse the sea. Job 9.8 says that God alone treads on the waves of the sea. God alone walks on the recesses of the deep, according to Job 38. Psalm 77, 19 says, that God, says of God, Your way was through the sea. Your path was through the great waters. Yet your footprints were not seen. Isaiah says the same thing in Isaiah 43. He describes the Lord as the one who makes a way through the seas, a path through the mighty waters. So the Old Testament pictures the Lord God as the one who treads on the water, who makes His way through the sea. So when Jesus walks on water, He is telling the careful observer, the careful reader, the careful student of the Old Testament and all of Scripture, that He is the Lord God in the flesh. He's doing what God does and God alone does. He's not just a man. He's the God-man. He's the all-powerful God in bodily form. One of the themes in this passage is God's power. Jesus' power, which is God's power. If you still have your Bibles open to John 6, look at verse 20 again. That's where Jesus says to His fearful disciples, it's I, it is I. Don't be afraid. But here's why this st statement is significant. The phrase, it is I, can also be translated, perhaps more literally, we could say, as I am. Jesus literally says, I am, do not be afraid. Now in Greek, it doesn't sound as awkward because the phrase I am can carry the meaning it's me. It, it, it is I. But it's important to know what Jesus is doing here and what John is doing here by recording this and how he uses this phrase in his Gospel. Several times throughout John's Gospel, G Jesus, J John has Jesus using the phrase, I am. 
to highlight that Jesus is the great I am. And when I say John has Jesus using it, I don't mean that he made it up. Jesus did use it, but he just records it and puts it in here a lot more, this phrase. I am is God's name in the Old Testament. In Exodus 3, after God told Moses to go back to Egypt and rescue his people, Israel, from Pharaoh, Moses asked God, who should I say sent me? Who are you? What's your name? And God said, tell them that I am sent you. My name is I am. So John's Gospel uses the phrase I am over and over, more than the other Gospels, to drive home the point that Jesus is God in human form. John is really the only Gospel that uses the I am statements of Jesus as a framework as a framework for presenting His Gospel. The most well-known example of what I'm talking about here, of course, is John in John 8 where Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus uses those very same words here in John 6.20. He tells His disciples, I am. Do not be afraid. So there's really kind of a double meaning. He's telling them it's me, but there's a theological significance that goes beyond that. And then in the following verse, John 6, verse 21, Jesus gets into the boat with them and they willingly receive Him. And then they worship Him. So we're seeing here that Jesus is God. And this is in fulfillment of Isaiah 43, verse 2, where God tells His people, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And by the way, Isaiah 43 was one of the verses I read a few minutes ago about God walking, treading on the water. And here he says, when you pass through the water, I will be with you. That's Isaiah 43. So this event is a fulfillment of that promise. Jesus promises you that when you pass through waters, He will be with you. He will get into the boat with you during the, sto- during the storm. When you're making headway painfully because the wind is against you, Jesus is with you. Following Christ will bring you to contrary winds. Again, that's a promise from the lips of Jesus. In this world, you will have troubles. But take heart, Jesus says, because there's another promise, another guarantee. I have overcome the world. Because Jesus is God, He is powerful. He is your provider. And He is present with you. His power is made perfect in your weakness. His provision is more than you need. More than enough for you. And His presence in the storm is only seen through the eyes of faith. Jesus sees all Jesus understands all and He cares for you, His people, personally. Because you belong to Him the way these 12 disciples belonged to Him. So are you going through a storm right now? If so, He sees. He knows. He cares. Believe this. Rest in it. Embrace it. Stop trying to fix it. Stop trying to control it. Stop striving and see Jesus. Look at Jesus and keep your gaze right there for more than five seconds before you get back to being 
busy and doing it yourself. Before you get back to rowing or running against the wind. There may be some wisdom in that old Bob Seger song. Stop rowing against the wind and rejoice that a compassionate, understanding friend, helper, Savior, Lord, King, and prophet is right outside your boat. So are you filled with darkness? Is it a dark time as it was for these disciples? Are you wondering where, whether there is a way out? Be open to the hand of God in your life. Focus the gaze of your faith on Jesus, God's Son. Is your life filled with uncertainty and instability, insecurity? Fix your eyes on Jesus and willingly receive Him into your boat as the disciples did. Are you dealing with interpersonal struggle or conflict with other believers or family members? Fix your eyes on Jesus and willingly receive Him. Is your faith weak? Are you sinking beneath the waves? Then pray like Peter, Lord, save me. And when He picks you up, walk with Him by faith. Let's pray and ask for help in doing this. Father, thank You for the Word of truth that we have heard and meditated on from John in particular and Matthew and Mark and the Psalms and Isaiah. May it go deep into our hearts and grow deep roots and produce much fruit in our lives. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your provision. Help us to trust in your power, Lord Jesus. Amen.